how do you deal with a situation where others are making humor out of something that is clearly coming from a hurt heart? Thank you, Anonymous. Well, how do you deal with a situation where others are making humor of something that's clearly coming from a hurt heart? Well, um, there's a couple of things. Is Sometimes when humor is taking place, um, people don't realize what's happening in their context. And sometimes humor is a cover-up for hurt. So you kind of have to um, understand that the humor is not necessarily directed at you and your hurt. The humor is sometimes there to cover things up and to distract from the hurt. And that's why, you know, especially in our context of humor, humor sometimes is very cynical. So cynic, being cynical it really is a form of anger. And you, you have to be able to... Um, the initial reaction as a, as a pastor is to let water off a duck's back because it's not necessarily directed towards your hurt. As the person who is feeling hurt about the, the humor, I think there is a way in which you can let present company know that this is something that you're walking through and is not funny. Okay? And I th you just have to w do it carefully and do it in um, unjudgment, being unjudgmental. Because people who are making humor out of hurt or out of your hurt in per perception are not aware I would probably look at it like that, that people who are making humor out of my hurt don't understand that I'm hurt. So I have to work from that context and not try to say they're just trying to hurt me more. Because if you do it like that, then you're all of a sudden creating a deficit and more of a deficit that's hard to pull back up. And your perception of what's taking place may not be the truth. Because... Humor is distractive and also to be light. Um, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think, I think humor is often a window into the soul, into the soul condition of people. And I think oftentimes um, people don't get feedback on how they're affecting others. And they don't get feedback on um, the way... Sometimes people hide behind making light of a situation or they hide behind sarcasm as a means of protecting themselves. And so I think when we realize this and when we're aware that sometimes people's uh, humor is coming from a place of hurt, then oftentimes we don't have to confront the humor as much as we can just perhaps, uh, if the condition allows for it, we can just directly address the hurt. Um, I know in my life I have one particular friend who, um, when, they, when he wants to let me know that I have hurt him or that uh, he feels disconnected from me, he makes fun of me in, uh, and it, in an increasingly harsh way. And so I have just learned to, instead of, um, to instead of in c confronting 
the way that those jokes make me feel, because they're kind of abrasive, I just go for the jugular. And I'm just like, wow, it sounds like you're hurting right now. No, I'm not hurting. You're just, you're just not being a very good friend right now. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. Let's explore that feeling, because we've moved beyond the humor into the reality of the situation. And you can actually, if, you're, if you can become discerning of a person's heart in the middle of a conflict, you can really bypass a lot of dysfunction. A lot of times when you're in a conflict, let's say you're in a, a place of business and someone's being really abrasive. Like a, like a wait, have you ever had this? You go to a restaurant and the waiter makes you feel like they're mad at you? Has, it, has this ever happened to anyone other than me? Okay. So my human reaction is like, well, I deserve better service than this. Or my, my human reaction might be, well, I wish they'd put this behind them so that, you know, because it's been like 20 minutes. We haven't even got water yet or whatever, right? But sometimes what I'll do is I'll go, wait, Holy Spirit, allow my discernment gift to become aware of what's going on in their heart. The, the amazing thing about discernment as opposed to judgment is discernment, you know, what, the reason why I bring up discernment is when someone says they're making humor that is clearly coming from a hurt heart, that's an act of discernment. Discernment is not judgment. Discernment is not like, oh, this person's broken and messed up and they need Jesus. They need, no, it's not, it's not projecting onto a person a problem. It's, it's becoming aware of their heart condition and wanting to help them and wanting to serve them. And so oftentimes when, a, let's say, a waiter is being really rude or being really um, mean, this just happened in August. <laughs> I was with a huge group of people, and this one waiter was being miserable, like making our lives, like it was like he was going out of his way to be the worst possible person that it's a long story, but anyway, it was really bad and really out there. Like, he was letting everyone know he was not happy with us, and we couldn't leave. And anyway, so we didn't know what to do. And so two people tried to confront him and say, hey, like, you're being mean to us. And finally, I said, hey, you know, I, I was actually praying. I was asking the Holy Spirit, like, what's, what's going on? And, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said, um, he, he's lacking respect. He's lacking a sense of feeling respected. I said, hey, I, I just want you to know, like, we've re- I know we've really inconvenienced you, but I'm really thankful that, that you've made space for us, especially for this spread that you've put before us. And he goes, I know, they're my mother's meatballs. And it went, went bing, because I discerned that he was lacking a sense of respect. I said, they're your mom's meatballs? He said, yes, it's my, fam- it's my family recipe. My brother's actually in the kitchen. He's working for you guys. We were like, oh, Wow. The, the context is this was a film shoot, so they had to serve us food that we weren't going to eat, that we were just going to take footage of. I said, well, this is amazing. I said, these are the best meatballs I've ever tasted. I hadn't even tried them yet, but I was just kind of laying it on thick. Suddenly, he opened up. He ordered an extra three platters of food for us. He stayed late, and he served us all this extra food. <laughs> Him and his brother now were like, we're going we're gonna to make our mother proud. So it was like every family recipe they had came out of the kitchen. And these other people on the film crew were like, what happened? Like this guy had this crazy turnaround. I was like, yeah, I know. I don't, I don't know what happened. <laughs> Someone else was like, Connor buttered him up. <laughs> so yeah, discernment helps. Okay, next question. Um, wh- how do you deal with a situation where others, oh no, sorry, what Where does community fit in our relationship with God? Well, um, community is is crucial in our relationship with God. Um, Because 
the outflow of, up of my relationship with God has to flow out of my relationship to other people. Because how, how I'm um, allowing to be more like him, I have to be able to show towards others. And so it is, it's very crucial that community fits in a very big part of my own discipleship and my own relationship with him because this is my way of being able to practice. I'm allowed to take what God is doing in my life and, and practice it and be able to produce that which he is asking to dwell in me. If the Spirit of God dwells in me, then I'm going to be led of the Spirit. I'm going to be uh, more like Christ, and therefore the only way I can do that is in community, by showing it to not only those that don't, aren't Christians yet, or those that are in my sphere of influence, and also those that are in my, my church community. And it's, it's crucial that we have the place where we can practice. That's great. That was a good answer. <laughs> Thanks, son. <laughs> <laughs> okay, in regards to emotional turmoil and depression, how can we better care for those of us dealing with mental illness in the day-to-day -day between Sundays? Also, I just forgot to mention, on the right-hand side, there's these upvotes. So you can actually log in, and if you don't have a question, but you just want to see them, you can, you can look at them and you can upvote the ones that you would like to see asked next. And we'll just ask the ones that are at the top um, that are upvoted the most on the list. So in regards to emotional turmoil and depression, how can we better care for those of us dealing with mental illness in the day-to-day -day between Sundays? Okay. How can we better care for those in, with mental illness in day-to-day -day between Sundays? Well... Um, It is a, I guess sometimes when people are going through a, a, a challenge relationally and mentally, those, those situations can have good days and bad days. And so some days you may have a, sometimes it's, there's not much things you can do, and then there's some weeks there is things you can do. When you're walking through a, a mental illness, it is, um, it's imperative to be uh, encouraging, to try to understand, but to point out a, a place of, of acceptance, forgiveness, and, ex and to walk that out in front of them. And quite frankly, uh, sometimes we get in, when we get into mental illness, um, we think we have to be someone else's savior. And you can't do that either because that becomes codependency. And so uh, it's crucial to understand that as we, we truly are, again, a practice of our vertical relationship horizontally, what does God want you to do in this relationship now. And it's also, in a community perspective, we're also not just 
a in the now type of people, we also want to pray for them all during the week that they could be successful. And trying to say one of the typical things, well, I understand what you're going on, what's going on with you. you that is a really cliche thing to say when people are walking through mental illness because you don't know what's going on in them. So you have to be able to uh, hear, discern, and live out Jesus in front of them. And that doesn't mean that you're their answer. You point them to the answer. And uh, the Holy Spirit is a better mental illness doctor than you are. Now, let me say this. Because of that, you can't get into this, I know what's best for you and you shouldn't do this or do that. Uh, again, you can't step into those shoes. Uh, it's encouraged, you need to encourage one another as you see the day approaching, the Bible says. So it's, it's imperative for us as Christians that we can walk alongside and build them up with the same aspect of allowing them the capacity to, to falter, to question, but to believe that there is a greater thing that's happening around them. And sometimes it means that as people, uh, we develop a relationship with them so that they are able to, to build into a trust relationship where they can trust their community rather than their perception of what's reality. Does that make sense? Like, if I'm depressed and I'm down all the time, I can have an outlook of being down and depressed all the time. Now, the medical, the medicalness of that is that you would take a pill in order to level out your emotions. Well, that's a, a coping factor, but it is, but the process of healing is greater than that. And so God desires for us as a community to surround those people and build them up so that God can, in fact, touch their lives. And that sometimes is not just a, I hope so in the distance. It means building a relationship with those so that they can understand what is truly happening in reality around them. It's building a relationship. It means that if Connor is always feeling bad about something, he needs someone that's going to be able to say, well, what you're feeling isn't necessarily true. Because the feelings are really a bad director of reality. Now, medication will bring him to making everything level, but it doesn't solve the necessary issues, and that's where you and I and the Lord come in. Does that make sense? Yeah, the only thing I would like to add to that is that when you're dealing with, with mental illness, um, we, we can't overstate how important presence is. The presence of God is always with us and never leaves us nor forsakes us. 
And oftentimes the, oftentimes the foundation of community is simply being present with people. Yeah. And because we live in a, in a miraculous culture, a kingdom culture, sometimes we want to fix it. We want to help people. Even if it's not mental illness, we want to, like, solve their problem for them. We want to tell them what's wrong and how to make it right. And we might be completely right, and we might offer just the most awesome advice. But oftentimes people just want us to be with them. And oftentimes it's, it's even better to allow. And so there's another component here that gets a little bit tricky in practice. And it's often something that we have to work out with people we trust in community just to figure out how to do this. But when it comes to mental illness, there has to be really good boundaries with people. Boundaries are a form of love. Boundaries are not walls, they're gates, which means that you have to have limits on, like for example, when I first started to get into like helping people, again, mental illness is the extreme end of the, the spectrum in community, but it doesn't have to be mental illness. It could be just someone going through emotional crisis. Call me day or night. Call me day or night. Okay, if you mean that, then you're signing yourself up to be the person's, one of the closest people that they have in their life. Mm -hmm. And really, only their core team of people should be those who they call any time, day or night. You actually can't call me day or night. <laughs> you can call me till about 10, and then I put my phone on silent and in a different room. Now, there have been people who have called me at night, and there have been people who have been able to get through to me at night. And there have been people in crisis who I have told you can call me day or night. So I'm not saying that these things are wrong. I'm simply saying that boundaries are set up based on how close we are actually walking with people and how much we're willing to give with them. Someone who is dealing with, let's say, depression doesn't need 200 people they can call day or night. They need a handful of people. They need other people who are willing to... <laughs> like, for example, there are people who are working through emotional issues who actually don't need advice and actually don't need someone to listen to their problems, who actually need someone who's kind of a respite, who's like, hey, let's go see a movie. Let's just go hang out. Let's just go have fun. I'm not necessarily the person close enough to work through all your emotional issues with, but I am the person who's close enough to you that I can give you some respite, like a break from your life and from your crisis. Does that make sense? So we need, we need all types of people, and if you're trying to help people who are working through issues, it's really important to figure out how close you are to them and what kind of boundaries you need to set up in order to relate to them appropriately, especially when they're dealing with mental illness. Okay, what is the difference between taking steps to fix your heart and soul and letting God transform us through the Holy Spirit? Can I, yeah. can, can I uh, yes, please. swing at this one? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you can fix your heart and soul, to be honest with you. I don't think you can transform, I don't think you can have a transformation of the heart without a work of the Spirit and without an act of repentance. And the Bible says that repentance is a gift. So oftentimes we approach repentance in a, in a Christian sense. We go, you need to repent or, oh, I'm wrong. I need to repent. But because it's a gift, you actually can't change your heart and mind without a work of the Spirit. And when it actually changes, it's a gift that God gives you, and it comes to you as a work of grace. So let me give you an example of this. And I, this example is going to make you uncomfortable because it makes me uncomfortable, okay? I'm working through something in my heart. Remember, just because this is a gift of grace doesn't mean I shouldn't pursue self-awareness because it's only as I see the problem that God is able to offer his solution, okay? So we're on this journey of the heart, me and God, and I'm trying to work through my stuff, 
and I'm trying to give my heart a voice. And so I'm in, I'm in the office here. This is months and months ago. If it wasn't months ago, I'd tell you, but it, in this case, it was months ago. I'm trying to work through this great pain and frustration I feel inside myself. And I feel the Holy Spirit going, you need to be more honest. You need to be more honest. You need to be more honest. So I feel myself digging down and looking for words to try to reflect and express what's really going on in my heart, okay? I find that what's in there is a feeling of hurt and a feeling of anger. And the feeling of hurt and the feeling of anger is coming from the fact that I felt like God promised me some things that haven't happened in my life, even though I'm working really, really hard for them. So I'm being faithful, but I feel like God isn't being faithful. And if I go one level deeper, now this is what happened, okay? I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm just telling you what I did, right? So you'll have to forgive me if you're offended. I got so, it's like I'm digging down, right? I'm digging down in my heart and I'm getting to deeper and deeper layers. I found myself saying this out loud at pretty loud volume. I'm glad Gina wasn't there this day, okay? I said, I feel, God, like I have to effing carry you. I like screamed it. You know, there's a whole bunch of Psalms in the Bible that are imprecatory that we don't like to say, and we're like, man, David got to some pretty dark places, right? Jeremiah says, God, you seduced me into something that you, you manipulated me. We're like, Jeremiah, you shouldn't say that. I said that. I said, God, I feel like I have to effing carry you, and I heard the Spirit of the Lord go, that's interesting, Do you have to carry me? I was like, <gasps> like if I'm going to get hit by lightning, it's right after I say that, right? <laughs> See, but God made me aware of something that was in my heart the whole time that I wasn't willing to admit to myself, but only as I admit it, I realize how wrong I am and how broken my thinking is. And I don't have to, oh man, I really need, need to fix that. The, the grace of repentance comes rushing into my heart, and I go, God, I am so sorry. I did not realize. I believed I had to carry you. I did not realize. I believed that you were weak, that you were uh, frail, that you needed me to prop you up. And I'm so sorry I felt that way. I give up on that. I repent of that project. That was so ridiculous to think I had to carry you. Will you please forgive me? He's like, yeah, I forgive you. I forgave you before, but I needed you to see that. Does this make sense? So the gift is the gift of repentance, but the gift of repentance can only be applied when self-awareness leads you to the reality of your own condition and the reality of your heart. Okay? Okay. It, do you want to add to that? Sorry. No, you did a great job. Thank you, Dad. It's been a while since Awakening received the Burning Ones prophecy. What do we have to do personally and corporately to become Burning Ones like God promised? Thank you, Ian. Ian, cheers on. Ian and Clint, cheers on putting your names on these questions. We are proud of you. Yes. <laughs> well, um, to answer the question, uh, what do I have to do personally and corporately to become burning ones? Well, the prophecy is, is, is actually the potential of what God desires to do. And oftentimes, um, there's, you can slip into two ruts with this, and that is one, you can make it a, a work, or you tend to say, well, this is all God, and I don't have anything to do with it. So if it happens, it happens. Or I'm going to do all I can to make sure that I make it happen. 
Either way, those are works of the flesh. You see, the desire that God has for what, for that plan A is to awaken our hearts to join with what He's already doing. So, we need to, as in all prophecies, whether they are corporate or individual, it's important and imperative to write them down. And in your own personal devotional time, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart of what that means for you. Ka-ching, ka-ching. The second thing is, corporately, allowing us as a, as a church to encourage those times that build burning ones. Now, in the capacity that it was, it was given, these would be of, of prayer and of worship. It's, so, I'm, I guess I'm going back to the prophecy. You have to be able to uh, bring that prophecy continually before the Lord in your personal devotional time, and then in corporate times, allowing and praying through that God would, in fact, corporately build in people's lives that capacity of being burning ones. You can't make it happen, but you can pray that it happens. And then oftentimes, God in His divine wisdom is, in fact, it's not what He's doing around you, it's what He's doing in you. So you yourself, in corporate times, have to also be willing to step forward in being a burning one when no one else is. So that means being a worshiper, allowing the burning of God's Spirit to flow through you. Can I be very practical here? It means that when we have worship times like we did this morning, it may, in fact, be imperative for us to get out of our comfort zone and get into a place where we are demonstratively passionate. You can't be a burning one and stay settled in your seat and not say anything and making it personal. This is a, it is a contagious fire. You ever seen fire? Fire just doesn't just burn and then if it doesn't have anything to consume, it goes out. So you have to place yourself to be the place it consumes. And as I said before this morning, right, your praise then encourages others. You can't see that encouragement unless that praise comes vocally, deliberately, outwardly. You have anything to add? No, I think you did a good job. You did, a, you did great there, Dad. That was awesome. Okay. Clinton asks, what is the best way to let others know there is no conflict between you and them when it seems like they think there is? Uh, it's a great question. Um, what's interesting is uh, when Jesus says, if you know your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go make it right with, with him. Um, 
I think first and foremost, when we come before God, we need to make sure that we aren't harboring any resentment or grudges toward people. And I think a lot of people's emotional hang-ups with God have to do with the fact that they're carrying conflicts with other people. So they're denying the reality of God and other people, but they're trying to worship the reality of an invisible God they don't see. But sometimes you can sense, you can kind of discern, like someone's turned against, tur- someone's turned away from me or someone seems disconnected from me. And oftentimes, if, I'm, if I have relationship with them, I'll just say, hey, I perceive, I perceive there's some disconnection between us. And I say, first of all, that I perceive it so that they can correct me if, if they don't see it that way, that it's just a subjective account. And I'll often say, I perceive there's disconnection as opposed to, I perceive that you're against me, which might sound like an accusation, right? But you can actually say this to anyone. Like, you can say this to a coworker or like a manager or a boss like, hey, I'm, f- I'm feeling weird vibes, and I'm not saying they're from you, but I'm just perceiving something, and I'm wondering, is there anything here that you need to talk to me about? Especially if I can tell that someone might be offended at me or uh, critical of me. Again, if I'm close enough to them, I think it's really important to clarify that I am not responsible for the offense or the concern of strangers. The reason why we walk as a family is so that we're responsible to family and we're not responsible to the crowd right? When Jesus offends thousands of people, he doesn't go around to all of them and be like, are you cool with me? Are we good? Are we good? Right? The rich young ruler, he says, sell all you have to give to the poor. And the rich young ruler walks away sad. Jesus doesn't go, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Like, please mis- don't misunderstand me. I love you. He doesn't do that, right? He's, he's beholden to the people he, he is doing life with. So if it's someone I'm doing li- life with, I'll just say, hey, I perceive that there's some disconnection between us. Is there something to that? Do you have anything you need to tell me? And then what I'll also do is I'll uh, put my head in the guillotine, which means I'll just voluntarily offer myself up to be sacrificed. Like, hey, is there something wrong with me? Do you need to give me any feedback? Is there anything that I could do better in our relationship? And when I make it really easy for people to confront me, then it gives them permission to bring up their issues, but it also softens the blow because they no longer see us as adversaries. They're like, oh, wow, he's actually really, he's really open in his heart for confrontation. So now it's like, well, uh, you know, I, I, thought you were, I thought you were angry at me, and, you know, I didn't know what to say, and w- what you said kind of hurt me, and, but, but I, you know, and then you can kind of get into it from there. So, anything you want to add to that? No, you did great. Oh, man. We're, we're just complimenting each other. Because I know who you are, Clint, is there anything that you feel like was not addressed in your question? Okay. And Ian, there's... My response is not because you're not. I'm just, did I answer it fully? Okay, great. Okay. Any suggestions for introverts on not dreading gatherings that involve large groups of people? Sunday gatherings, life groups, etc. All the extroverts, raise your hand and we'll know who the introverts are. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Whether you know it or not, uh, both of us, are introverts, <laughs> right? Uh, you may not know that, but uh, we we often come across maybe as extroverts. But um, I'm an introvert. Um, I in, uh, you you can speak for yourself. I should. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'll let you speak. Uh, I'm an introvert, so. Um, Sometimes I do, I do dread large groups, um, and especially sometimes when I have to do things um, 
very outgoingly. I, that's probably, did I say that right? Very extrovert. I have to be an extrovert, and I'm not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. So I'll give you an example. Um, because I'm on city council, there's sometimes I have to go and stand up in front of people, and I have to welcome people, or I have to do certain things that I don't know anybody in the room, except I'm responsible to represent the city at a big gathering. That can scare the living bejeebers. Oftentimes when I'm standing in front of you and I'm preaching, I, can, I get nervous. You don't know that, but that is a lot, a lot of the time the case. So what are the suggestions? Number one is sometimes we have to realize that our comfort zone can be as much as a hindrance as our non, can be a, a, a hinder, a trap for us not being able to grow. And sometimes we have to be able to uh, set the thermostats of our lives very, very small so that we can be who God sees that we are in the process of our growth. Now, he's not trying to make you an extrovert. He's just asking that as you confront your fear and step out, it's not as bad as what you are feeling and what you're experiencing. Two is sometimes it's our perception of people that we don't feel safe. And learning the fact that you know what, people love me the way I am, not the way I want them to perceive me, can be a great healing in that. Um, uh, three, where's the question again? It's, it, it went down. It went down. Okay. Um, uh, oftentimes, um, it's understanding that there are people in, your, in the room, in the group, in Southern gatherings that need to hear what you have to say. And guess what? As an introvert, you have lots of depth inside you that needs to be released. Because oftentimes, introverts are listeners. And listeners are able to hear the room and see things that extroverts just fly by, okay? And so they, so as, as introverts, we can totally read a room and bring discernment and wisdom that's needed in life groups and Sunday gatherings, and uh, it's part and parcel of encouraging one another as we see the day approach. I would like to add that as an introvert, I just recognize that if I'm in a setting that... Um, so what I would describe is I get refreshed or replenished in my soul from one-on-one -on -one connections and from time by myself. And I find that my more extroverted wife gets replenished from slightly larger experiences and from, from though she says that some of that is changing because we have kids who are constantly pulling on us. Um, <laughs> and parents of young kids understand what that's like. But extremely extroverted people, they come alive and seem to get more alive. It's like their tank gets refilled by larger gatherings or from a spirit of community where, you know, things are jovial and a party atmosphere is happening and they have a chance to just kind of connect with a lot of people. And um, 
acknowledging that I'm wired that way is good, and all, and what it requires of me is having good personal boundaries where I know how to refresh my soul in a more introverted way so that I'm making up for it's like when I come when I'm going to church I realize I'm spending I'm not earning I'm spending and for some of us introverts coming to church it's like well it's such a sacrifice yes it's a sacrifice of praise it's not just the sacrifice of praise like I lift my hands it's like God I'm coming as an act of sacrifice because it would be much more fun for me to stay at home and play video games and like I'm confessing to you sometimes I think that I'm like man It'd be fun to stay home and play video games. Like, I've skipped church like five times in my life, and every time I was throwing up. So it's not like I'd actually do that, right? But just acknowledging my heart condition, like, hey, I'm actually going to, I'm going to give from my account today. I'm going to this party. It's going to be fun in general. It's not necessarily going to be fun for me, but I'm giving. I'm not receiving right now. And so I need to find time where I get to receive. And so I put boundaries in my life so that I actually have, okay, I'm going to make some time for myself here, and I'm going to go for a walk there, and I'm going to take a, a friend for coffee here. And sometimes my wife will check me. She'll be like, hey, do you really need to, do you really need to say yes to that? Because that's going to drain your account. Maybe it'd be better for you to make some time with this person and just make it a one-on-one -on -one thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that, you're probably right. So just being aware that some things are going to take from your account, some things are going to give to your account, and it's just compensating for that. And quite frankly, extroverts, it works the same way the other way, right? Because sometimes it's like, well, it's really draining to be by myself. But it's only in that place where you can find uh, maybe contemplation and one-on-one -on -one spirit to spirit connection with the Lord. And so you go, wow, I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to make a sacrifice by going deep here or by going one-on-one -on -one here or by being by myself. And that's a good thing. That's a good sacrifice to make. Okay, I want to engage in regular spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, etc., but I am lacking desire. How do I increase desire for spiritual growth? Okay, I, I've been given the go-ahead. Thank you, Jada. Thank you for putting your name on it. Um, I find it interesting in your question that you said, I want to, but I'm lacking desire. And I can't speak for you, but I will speak for me. When I want to do what I don't want to do, I am aware now, especially when it comes to spiritual disciplines, that a component within me that I'm struggling with is performing those spiritual disciplines for the sake of God and not for the sake of me. And when I really realized, like when I really became convicted that none of those things you listed are for God, they're actually for me, they're for my benefit, then I became free from the external pressure to to want to want those things. And I became free to realize, oh, God does not have an expectation of performance upon me. God has actually given these things for my blessing. And so the part that felt performative in me was like, I really need to be reading my Bible an hour a day. And then it's like, do, do I need to be reading my Bible an hour a day? Or is that an external expectation upon me where I feel like, I, well, of course, I should want to read the Bible an hour a day. I should want to read the Bible 10 hours a day. I should want to read the Bible so much that I forget to, like, eat and sleep, and I'm just super spiritual, and I'm like, glory, and that's not actually real life, right? And I found out that there's a lot of people who I love and admire who it's like, what did you read from the Bible today? Well, I actually read one verse, and what did you read yesterday? The same verse, and the day before that, the same verse. I've been on the same verse for six months, and you're like, what? That counts? 
yeah, that also counts. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't structure these disciplines in your life. Of course, you might need to create space for them. But it starts by being more authentic about, like, what, what actually do I want? What actually do I need? And creating space for that requires first stepping out of any sort of external expectation from God where you think that your spiritual disciplines are adding to his account or, or making him pleased with you, when in reality, he's giving them to you as gifts. Okay. Um, uh, do you want to add to that? or uh, Maybe else. Maybe you already said this. Um, but sometimes the, the things that we don't like to do, we, we need to do in order to establish a foundation. And uh, oftentimes we are deconstructing those things to free us. But in fact, we then lose uh, our, our capacity to disciple ourselves. Discipleship is truly important in our walk with Him. And there's really a, a, a tendency to let discipleship just happen. And so... Uh, the desire is there needs to be some kind of formation in our lives in order to uh, to understand and and come into an experience of who God is. So, do I have to do all those things? Uh, no, they they're they're designed to bring help and formation in order to bring life. Maybe I'm saying the same thing. Am I saying? So we, uh, we often, you know, the very things that we kind of chafe at are the very things that can help build in us a, a capacity to hold more of what God wants to do in our lives. How do you help someone who gives really good biblical advice but doesn't take or use it for themselves? Um, interesting. Well, you know, to be honest with you, sometimes my sermons are confessionals about what I'm working through. So sometimes I'm preaching more to myself than I'm preaching to anyone else. And if you're dealing with someone who has a spirit of revelation on their life, they're able to draw good advice and good principles all the time, and that doesn't mean that they're living by them. And really the issue is a relational one where they're imposing, if you feel like they're imposing something upon you that they're not living themselves, then you feel like they're a hypocrite. And that's the issue that you need to deal with which is like if someone's being a hypocrite toward me, I don't necessarily get to confront them. I just move them back a level of influence, right? And so I always try to preach out of what I'm practicing, not, not preach to teach myself how to practice it. And, and I try to live my message before I share it with people. And I think that's a good practice to have. But if you're dealing with someone who's giving you the Bible and giving you good principles, but they're not living according to those principles, it's like, well, maybe, maybe those aren't the ones for you. Again, we're building a, an incarnate faith, which means that we're building a life with God that is lived before it's taught or spoken, right? The Word is always made flesh. So someone might give you absolute gold about what the Bible says or what you should do or what the right principle is, but it's really only when it's lived that it means something to the kingdom, right? So a lot of people, they actually don't know what to tell you, but they're actually living out the example for you. Sometimes you seek somebody's advice and you're like, hey, uh, this is what I'm going through. Can you help me? And they're like, man, I don't know. 
But if you watch their life, you realize that they're living the answer, <laughs> even though they don't necessarily have the gift to tell you the answer, right? So. Sometimes there's, there's the gift and the person, and, and the, the operation of a gift does not necessarily, it, it operates in the flesh and in the spirit. And so sometimes it's, it's understanding that a word of wisdom can be just that. It can be good, but you, you un, you're understanding that there is a difference between the benefit of that gift and the giver. And the, the two can be, can be looking like they're in opposite ends. So you have to understand that there could be an operation of a gift, but the character is not there that's being developed. And so you have to understand that those two things can operate against, can, can operate at the same time. I'm going to read a handful of questions at once because we're running out of time. We only have time for a couple more, and, um, and there are, a lot of these are in the same general theme. I want to give my heart a voice, but sometimes what comes out seems really ugly. What do I do about that? Someone else put, what am I supposed to do if I find myself doubting or questioning things? I feel adrift, and it's scary sometimes. Uh, someone I love has hang-ups, and they keep going around and around the mountain. What should I do? Um, I feel like there was another one. I'm still learning how to work at this. And then there's kind of the other side of it. How do you deal with someone that sometimes they, sometimes they believe, and then next time it changes, it is not easy when you believe, and, and they, I'm presuming the question is when you believe and they don't or they're doubting. Thanks. Um, yeah, these are all real things that we've got to figure out together. <laughs> there's, no, um, there's no overarching principle that will solve this one for us. This is the, the work of real community, like authentic, uh, authentic relationship through process, through people's process. And uh, when you give your heart a voice and what comes out seems really ugly, what do I do about that? Well, the first thing you realize is uh, you're in good company. Because like David and Moses, I mean, even, can, can I be real with you? Like even Jesus screams, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Jesus feels God forsaken even though he's not. And so to be honest about what's going on and to confront some of the ugliness, it's still there even if you're ignorant of it. <laughs> but when you give your heart a voice, it gives the Holy Spirit permission to deal with what David in the Psalm said was the dark places of your heart, the places that you'd rather hide. What's amazing is that shame allows things in the dark to grow in really ugly ways. But when you bring light to those things and give them a voice, you're actually not making them worse. You're making them better because you're bringing them before the light of God's love. And I would just encourage you to give the things in your heart a voice before you give your heart a voice toward other people. Like trust that the presence of the Lord is always abiding with you and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And be the person you should be the most honest with in your life is first and foremost God before it's everyone else. Because when you're walking with other people and it's like, well, it's Tuesday and I don't know if God exists. <laughs> it's like, or it's Tuesday and I don't know if my wife loves me. It's like, it's really difficult to be friends with a person who, who makes you their one and only anchor. That can be a huge burden. But if you're personally going through a process and you're first and foremost like, I'm going to commit to being radically honest about even the ugly things with God 
and then I'm going to walk closely with a handful of people like my spouse or my covenant friends, that's a great order to the chaos that you're experiencing, right? And it's like if you're in the middle of a storm, step one is wake Jesus up. Because it's like if you don't have the faith to calm the storm, Jesus is good. <laughs> and Jesus will calm your storm for you, right? I just was working with, I just was talking with a friend this week, and he said, he said to me, honestly, he's like, I still have a relationship with God, but we're not on good terms. He's like, if, if God and I had a Facebook status, it would be, it's complicated. And I said, that's good. I said, you're doing a good thing. By being honest about your relationship with God, to God, is the first step so that now that we're talking as friends, I can support you without feeling like I have to carry you on my shoulders, which is a boundary violation. Just the fact that you know it's ugly means that you, you know that there's a, a, uh, a correction that needs to come. Um, and so I, I think that sometimes uh, being in that place of, of submission to God and what he thinks about that ugliness is crucial. Uh, two, um, you know, just like what Connor says, as, as you have those close friends, you can uh, walk in that, uh, that humility towards them that they are able to speak. Uh, what's the word? Um, uprightly or can can be a little, um, I want to say confrontational, but that sounds very antagonistic, very uh, up, in straightforward is a good word, uh, with you so that you're able to, to see how to correct the ugliness. Uh, it's, it's one thing to know that it's ugly. It's ugly. It's, there also needs to be a capacity in order to change the ugliness. And... God can do that. Okay, well, we'll just finish it by a a answering these last top questions. I'll start with the easier, the easiest one first. Can people really sell their soul to the devil? No, they cannot. You can't sell your soul to the devil. Colossians says that the very powers and principalities that held us bound, the very legal system that kept us in bondage was nailed to the cross with Jesus. So, um, uh, as an idiom, when we say people sold their soul to the devil, like, you know, we get the picture of, like, the rock guy that, <laughs> the blues artist who, like, the devil appears and says, if you give me your soul, I'll make you famous or whatever. And it's like, that's the, that's like an old story from the 1930s, actually. Um, kind of an urban legend that has kind of carried on. Um, but no, there is nothing that the devil can do that the God, that God cannot undo. And uh, the very system that held us in bondage, uh, you know, the church fathers talked about Christ being our ransom, meaning that if there was a debt to be paid, it was not paid to God, but it was paid to the devil and powers of darkness. And in the exchange, in God giving up his life, he actually destroyed the system that held us in bondage. When Aslan dies at the hands of the white witch, the table that he's killed on gets broken so that no other person will ever die by her hands. So just so you know, you can't do anything uh, it's so demonic that God can't save you. 
I'll do the one on top. I don't feel very creative by nature. It's art for everyone, or am I just not that type of person? Um, I, I want to say that I think that... Uh, I always say this to my wife. I am not a painter. I am not a... You know, she gets mad at me because uh, I just need to do it. Um, so I, I totally understand... To not totally, but I... I can relate to the creativityness of some people being better than others. What I want to say is this. Everybody here in this room can be creative. Why? Because you were made in his image and he is a creative God. The thing is, is that your, your, your capacity or your ability to be creative can be different from... Mine is different from my son's. Mine is different than my daughter's. Yours is different from me. And so you have to allow yourself to understand that there is a capacity for creativeness. Otherwise, we would all be zombies or we'd all be robots and we'd all be doing the same thing. And we're not. Some of us enjoy being outdoors and getting out. Some of us like to, you know, be in a tractor and pull big heavy-duty things and do harvest and all that stuff. There are, there are different interests and capacities, and there are things that are burning in, in you that can be released. You just I'll need to ask the Holy Spirit to bring that dream out of you because there is that capacity to dream, to envision, angelic visitations. All those things are part of the creative nature of God that can come through you. Yeah, and you can't, the, the only thing I'll add is you can't be judgmental and curious at the same time. So every kid reaches a stage where they look at their own art and say, this isn't good enough. And that's where some kids stop being artistic. But, uh, you know, you might not be good at painting, but you could still paint because this isn't a competition. And even bad art is better than a universe of no art. <laughs> so just make something. Like, try your hand at something. And if it's ugly and bad, and you're not going to regret it. You're not going to regret trying to express yourself. Um, even if you feel incredibly limited and childlike when you do it. Like, children do it for the fun of it. You know, when they finger paint, they're not like, well, this is going in the gallery. It's like they know mom and dad are going to put everything up, so they just have fun. So just, like, have fun with your life, you know? <laughs> Stop being so judgmental of yourself. You know, no one, is, no one is measuring you. God is not measuring you. You're the only one who's measuring you. Yeah. So stop it and, uh, and, and enjoy yourself. Uh, finally, I, uh, do you think I will be able to show my passions without being shy? I'll let you start. Um, I think shyness is a real thing. I don't think that it's, um, I don't think that it's uh, fake or wrong to admit that you're shy, but I think that a lot of shyness is, uh, is a lack of confidence that people can be trusted and that you're in a safe environment. And I think that if you struggle with shyness and if you struggle with expressing yourself or expressing your passions because you're afraid of what people will think, or that you, uh, people will not accept you. A lot of people are not shy, but a lot of people, I talked about playing a role, playing a performance. A lot of people play a performance because they're afraid of letting the real them be seen by other people. It's a fear of rejection that makes them um, cool with living out of a projection rather than living out of a true sense of self. And um, you'll only really get to discover how people feel about you when you show up as yourself and when you're fully present with him. When you take a courageous risk to put yourself out there and, you know, 
Can I can I just put someone like on the spot right now? Uh, I hope this is okay. I found out that Shannon loves The Nightmare Before Christmas. I had no idea, okay? I've never seen that movie. It's kind of weird and creepy, but also kind of cool, and it's like stop motion, right? And I just love that I was like, I think it was something on your car, right? A car seat cover. I was like, what is this, Shannon? She's cleaning the church. I come to the office. I see her Nightmare Before Christmas car seat covers, right? What is this, right? I know enough to know it's a movie. It's not like it's some demonic thing that I need to, like, pray for her. We're going to do some prayer ministry today, Shannon. Not like that at all. I was like, what is this? And she's like, well, I just really love this movie. And I was like, I now know something about you that I really like, you know? I know she loves worship music. She blasts the worship music at, like, 60 decibels in here when she's alone. I come in, and it's like, it's like worship powerhouse central, right? But honestly, I feel like I got to know Shannon a little bit better when she put herself out there. She's like, I like this movie, and I remember for Christmas. So I'm like, well, I haven't seen it. I have no idea what's in it or not in it. But I actually think that it's really cool that you would, like, lead your life with your passions, and your passions would lead you to buy these car seat covers that I didn't even know you could buy for a movie that came out in 1993, right? <laughs> so it's like when you put yourself out there and when you express your passions, you're putting your real self out there, and that's actually where community begins. It's nice to, like, go around and be like, hi, bless you, nice to see you, love you, God bless. Like, we, we sometimes live in a very fake kind of Christianity where we're all very sincere about the persona we play. But it's like if we get honest with one another and put our passions out there, it's like, oh, wow, there's some uniqueness about you. And, uh, and then suddenly it's like I didn't have to be so scared and so shy. Like people actually like me. They like the weird and, and, and unique things about me and the things that are kind of idiosyncratic and maybe the things that other people are like uncomfortable with too. But it's like, hey, at least it's real. So uh, I would say it connects with the third question there. I wish I could pursue my dream job, but I don't know where to start. Oftentimes, being shy and not being able to start something means that you're, you're, you're caught and uh, you're not, it's taking the step to at least get into the, the place where you can begin something. And uh, oftentimes, uh, the reason why we don't start in our dream job is because we don't have the, we haven't put ourselves in a place where that could, could take place. So, Pray about it. Put yourself in a position where you can, in fact, that dream job can come to you. Um, start dreaming about it. Start thinking about it. Start planning about it. Start praying about it. Right there is the place. It always puts you in the place where the capacity there can now start to take place. That dream job is not just a dream. It now has a little bit of... of legs in which you can begin to run with it.